Wake up! Time for Jack Mangan's Deadpan Podcast. Alright, this is April 1st, 2013, when this is coming out. Which means two things. It means this is the last of the Deadpan Blade Runner Palooza episodes. So thank you everyone for all of the great thoughts and content. And uh, it's really been a lot of fun. It's been at least as much fun as any of the other ones we've done. Uh, Blade Runner is looking to be the last one. So I think we've gone out with quite a bang. In this episode we will actually have Vanamond talking with used hair. Along with some thoughts from Amy Bowen. The other thing that April 1st means is that I still, even all these years later, still remember Joe Murphy. All right, let's read some comments, and we'll get right to the uh, the Palooza. Lopan says, Done, sir. We miss you, Mr. Rocket. Retro says, Glass raised high to Randy Innuendo. Ditto says, Brilliant. Cheers. Espy says, Cheers, awesome and brilliant, Joe. Amy Bowen says, I had a root beer float for dessert tonight. Smiley face. In the first of the week, not quite related, Vanamon says, Yes, we have bananas. We have bananas today. All right, enough of that silliness. On with the episode. Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of Jack Manganstead Pan. Hello, Deadpan. This is Amy Bowen, a.k.a. the Deadpan Ambassador. I'm recording this on the evening of Tuesday, March 19th, 2013. I just finally got around to watching the director's cut of Blade Runner. I watched the U.S. theatrical cut a while back, but I decided to hold off on recording until I had seen both the theatrical and director's cuts. The following are some thoughts that I typed up while I was watching the original theatrical cut. Many of them are comparisons between the film and the book, and I think I agree with the conclusion that Bunny and Vanamond came to in their conversation. It's not a very good or faithful adaptation of the book, but nonetheless it is a great classic sci-fi film. Without further ado, my notes from my first viewing of Blade Runner. Yay, Vangelis! I love the Vangelis songs that I know from other places. I think I'm going to like this movie. Despite the details that seem hilariously wrong to those of us who live in the future, like the Pan Am ads and the Vidphone booths, I like the futuristic world where this movie takes place. It's very, very different from the semi-abandoned ruins of San Francisco where the book takes place, but nevertheless I like it. It's a well-developed setting. Props to the set designers, art directors, and the director for that piece of the puzzle, at least. And they did keep the flying cars, which is good. They kept the owl! They kept some of the dialogue the same in that scene where Deckard and Rachel meet for the first time, too. Awesome! Also, Rachel is extremely well cast. She looks very close to how I imagined her looking in the book, except, um, better developed which isn't surprising since it is a movie. Call me sacrilegious, but I actually appreciate Dr. Tyrell's explanation that they've started giving the replicants artificial memories so that they can control them better. The reason for the fake memories was left pretty much unexplained in the book, as I recall. 
Oh, for goodness sake. Did they have to make Roy so obviously evil from the very first moment we meet him? In the book, he's genuinely sympathetic. In the book, Roy and Ermgard together make you realize that the androids just want the experience of empathy, the knowledge that they're not alone in the universe, which is exactly the same thing that the humans want. That was a very powerful moment for me in the book when I realized that. That the movie version of Roy isn't as sympathetic disappoints me. Regarding the idea that Rachel's fake memories are actually Tyrell's nieces, in the book, from the very first scene where we meet Rachel, I was waiting for Mr. Rosen to reveal that there was a real Rachel who died and the android was a replacement for her. The actual revelation of her true purpose in the book was a surprise for me. The whole sequence in the middle where Deckard is following the trail of evidence starting with the scale he found in the bathtub? Great example of detective work. Why they couldn't have just called him a detective like in the book? Well, I know, it's because Blade Runner sounds cooler. In any case, Deckard is actually acting much more like a detective in the movie than he did in the book, where he was acting a lot more like an assassin. Ugh. When Zora gets retired, it's just horrific. And then the look on Leon's face is the real kicker. I have to say, I felt the emotional impact of this scene way more in the movie than I did in the book in the scene where Luba dies. After the chase scene where Rachel saves Deckard from being killed by Leon, that was when I really got invested and involved in the movie. Departure from the book, yes, but it worked for me. Actually, at the very end, you do feel empathy for Roy. You find out that he does want one of the same things that the humans want, namely to stay alive. Deckard says in one of his voiceovers that, quote, All he'd wanted were the same answers any of us want. Yes, that's true in the book, too, but the book doesn't say so in so many words. I can see why people would have a problem with the voiceovers. They just don't like having information spoon-fed to them. That's the end of my reactions to my first viewing of the theatrical cut of Blade Runner. Here's my reaction to the director's cut. Hmm. Yeah, the director's cut does end ambiguously at best and very bleakly at worst. Is that necessarily such a bad thing, though? I think there's something to be said for ambiguous endings that let you imagine what happens next. I think I'll need to mull it over before I can say for sure which ending I like better, though. Finally, in response to Retro and Jack and Pixie's conversation about the movie, Retro, thank you for explaining about the hints the director put in that Deckard was a replicant. I was wondering what the heck the unicorns had to do with anything. I feel a little foolish now because I didn't put two and two together between the dreams and the idea of there being fake memories implanted in the androids, so thank you for mentioning that on pod. I plan on watching the final cut as soon as I can, I'm getting all my Blade Runner DVDs via Netflix, and I might record some final thoughts after I see it. Until then, Amy Bowen, out. Are you ready, kids? Aye, aye, Captain. I can't hear you! Aye, aye, Captain. Gosh.
Ja, so. Oh! Who lives in a pineapple under the sea? Mangan's deadpan. Absorbent and yellow and porous is he? Mangan's deadpan. If nautical nonsense be something you wish. Mangan's deadpan. Then drop on the deck and flop like a fish. Mangan's deadpan. Mangan's deadpan. Mangan's deadpan. Mangan's deadpan. Mangan's deadpan. And sometimes we do haiku. And FYI, you will need both your speakers, both channels, to hear the following conversation. Hey, Ben. Hello. <laughs> you said. Right. How's it going? Are you, are you okay? Oh, yeah. Right, well, I'm, I'm using some new software, so hopefully it'll work. It says recording, so um, fingers crossed and all that. Okay, then. Excellent. Um... I suppose just get started. We're going to talk about Blade Runner, so introduce yourself. So I'm used hair. Yeah. Otherwise known as Jesse. And I'm Adam Bond. So, I don't know how we're going to do this. Um, <laughs> it's a bit early in the morning for me. Um, yeah. Well, I listened to... You know, the the conversation that, that you and uh, the Energizer Bunny had. Right. So I, I have some some background knowledge of, of where you're coming from with the movie. We'll try to concentrate on you then. With uh, the book. You know, because like I said, they've, they've already heard me sort of spout on about <coughs> it. So we'll try to concentrate on, on your viewpoint. And <coughs> you've said that you prefer the film to the book. Well, yeah, and I, I, I think I, I still like the book. Um, but the, the movie, you know, I started watching the movie long before I even knew there was a book to go along with it. Uh, you know, I was pretty young when this came out and then the first, you know, the first time I watched this movie, I had no concept of any of the, you know, possibility that Deckard might be a replicant or anything like that. I just watched it, you know, this guy chasing down, uh, robots, you know, and thought it was a cool movie. Uh, and then, you know, as I watched it more, and as, you know, <clears throat> as I grew, uh, I started picking up on, on more of what was going on in the movie, and, you know, so then came to like it for that as well. Um, and and I really think, you know, for all the talk that, that, that the movie isn't really about the same thing as the book, I you know, that it was more inspired by than, than, than follows the book. You know, I can see where that's coming from, but at the same time, I think even though they're only about 15 years apart, they're they're coming from very different times. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the late 60s, when Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep was written, you know, the concept of androids and things like that was still very far off. It was still very much just in the imagination, so it was more just a metal mind game of, you know, what makes this life, what doesn't make this life. Whereas in the mid, you know, early 80s when, when Blade Runner came out, we were very much in the, you know, holy crap, we might actually be able to do this realm. Hmm. And, you know, I, I went back and just watched the movie again yesterday. And normally, you know, I really, I don't watch a movie 
sitting there going, well, gee, what's the underlying symbolism here? What what are they really trying to say? You know, I just sit back and I watch the movie. Uh, but, you know, this was a, a first for me. And I just sat and watched the movie and said, what the hell is it they're trying to get at? What are they really trying to say here? And I think it was very much about, you know, it was the it's about us crossing the threshold between making something that emulates life and making actual life. You know, I think that's, you know, some of these replicants managed to cross that threshold and, and became truly living things. And some of them didn't. Mm. I mean, cause like in the book, I think it's fairly like, they're not, I don't know, I suppose they technically are they're still alive, but, um, they really right. are like a pure limitation of humans, aren't they? Um, in some respects. Yeah, but I think, you know, in, in Dick's perspective, I think, you know, they weren't alive in the sense that, you know, they were alive in the sense that they could fight for survival. Mm. But I think a lot of his point with empathy and things like that was that it takes more than just the fight for survival for something to really be alive. Yeah. I think that's where the movie, you know, took that another step further. Um, because the, the androids in the book were definitely not, you know, none of them were crossing any thresholds. They weren't really living. They were just trying to. Yeah, almost like copy amusement. I mean, because there's like mentioning them trying to keep pets and they kind of they, they kind of keep pets and they just don't seem to get it. That's that, that's the impression you get from the book. Right, and um, I think you know the, the the previous times I'd watched the movie, I'd always assumed that you know it was very unsure as to whether or not Deckard was a replicant or not. So this last time when I watched it, I, I you know it's okay. Well, you know Ridley Scott says yeah he was definitely a replicant. And I watched it with that in mind and you know wow it just like pops out at you all the pictures sitting up on his piano and the uh you know it, it really does pop out at you at least i watched the director's cut where he was really attempting to show that yeah uh, and it does come out that way you know wow he really is definitely a replicant hello just letting you know that all of us pixies listen to jack mangan's deadpan that's right. All of the pixies love Jack Mangan, and Deadpan is the pixie listening way. I mean, you see, I mean, I don't know. My my, my main problem, and I and I freely admit it's it's a hangover from liking the book so much, is that um, I just as I said, I think for me, when you when you I've, I've watched, I think I've watched all the different cuts, and I don't know. I, I prefer the ones where it's less obvious that. That's, that was the intention. I think for me it works better if he's human than he is in the book. Because I don't know, it, uh, it doesn't seem to have the same emotional payoff to me if um, he's actually a, an android replicant. It just it, it seems a bit too cheesy for me. Yeah, but I think it's it's he's one of the ones that makes it. He's one of the ones that 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 beats it and becomes actually something living and not just emulating life anymore. Um, you know, the way I saw it, it was, you know, the whole concept of empathy, which is, you know, a key player in, in the book as well, mm. you know, that's that seems to be what's driving the distinction, at least in the movie. Mm. And, you know, when I watched it this last time, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it from that perspective, and, you know, Leon and Zora and Pris just don't come close. They... They have no concept of, of what to do. They're just fighting for, for survival. That's all they're doing. 
Um, and then Rachel, it, it's really interesting when I'm looking at it from the empathy perspective, because at the start of the movie, she looks very plastic and artificial and her hair is super shiny and plastic looking and her clothes are very, you know, straight edged and everything about her looks artificial until the moment where she's in Deckard's apartment and she starts watching him sleeping and, and she switches from purely being interested in what's going to happen to her to actually caring about him. And then she literally lets her hair down and starts looking and acting human. Mm-hmm. You can actually see her sort of cross that threshold. I, I never, I mean, yeah, it's also, I, I just watched the theatrical release as, as you heard. And, um, it's, you can see it, it some things, I don't know how to put it into words, some things came through, like, where you could tell that he was, it was almost like in the book as well, where he's starting to feel empathy, isn't he, for the, the replicants. And, yeah. And, um, so, I mean, obviously you would agree that you would think, well, so yes, you said, no, he's sort of made it into, like, humanity, isn't it? He's like crossed over in humanity almost, hasn't he? Right. Yeah. Yes. And and you can see that, and, and the way I got it from the movie, and I'm sure it's not, you know, the same way most other people got it from the movie, but the, the thing that I saw is that, you know, Roy Batty is really fighting the good fight for this thing, really the one trying to become human. And at the very end, when he pulls, because Deckard is, is all throughout that movie, you can... You know, you kind of get that he's struggling with the whole killing of androids things. He didn't want to do this in the first place, but it didn't really take that much of a threat to get him on board. Yeah. Um, but you can see that he's been struggling with it, that he wants to empathize with them, but he'll do it. He'll go ahead and kill the androids. And it's not until Batty goes and pulls him back up over that ledge and Batty crosses over and and feels empathy and says, okay, you know, I get it now, mm. and then gives Deckard his speech. That's, I think, the point where Deckard actually crosses over, and the um, I don't remember what his name is, Gaff, the the character played by Edward James, almost, you know, comes up to him and says, "Are you done now?" And now Gaff knows he's got one more to kill, mm. so he's not asking him, "Has he killed the last replicant?" He's asking, "Are you done killing now? Have yeah. you finished with this? Have you?" crossed over have you reached this empathetic state yet and he says yes <laughs> <laughs> so i think batty sort of brings deckard over mm. and actually helps him cross that threshold hey everyone this is dan charette author of lilith's love and host of the out of the coffin podcast and you are listening to jack mangan's deadpan podcast deadpan is the motherfucking way How's that? Sweet? Laters. So, do you prefer the later, the, like the later versions where it's more obvious than, than, than like the original one where it wasn't so obvious that he was a replicant? I'd have to go back and watch the theatrical release again. Mm. Um, you know, it's been a long time since I've seen that one. Now, I know for a long time I, re- I was in the odd camp that I actually liked the narration that Harrison Ford was giving, especially at the end. Mm. 
Uh, you know, because when I started watching that movie and I was young and I had no idea what was going on, I really needed that. <laughs> I needed Harrison yeah. Ford going, oh, here's what Patty's doing here, you know. Well, also, I mean, as I said, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's been classified as, as, as I mentioned before, in future noir. So it, it goes in with that as well, doesn't it, with the voiceover? If you, yeah. If you're trying to, like, if you're trying to sort of hark back to the original, like, or the old, old style films, they had the voiceovers, didn't they? Well, some of them did anyway. Yeah, and I think that was that, you know, as much as I did like the book, I think what what pulled me back a little bit was that they were so different in style. The movie was so much noir. It was so dark and gritty. And, you know, the, the book just didn't capture that for me. It didn't come off as being that dark. Mm. I mean, uh, you do get, like, the... It's, it's, after World, it's after World War Three, so... Um, you get like you know you just give the impression of like a wasteland and um, very little life in the book. Right. Uh, it's not like a sort of it's certainly not like the antiseptic future that that would have been the, the sort of almost the norm in that time when he wrote the book. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying it's like it's not. Oh, I don't know how to put this. In, it's. Uh, obviously, the the film is trend-setting, isn't it? In its look. Yes, yes. very much so. Um, where in the book, I mean, I do get the impression that it's, uh, it's like dirty and gritty, but obviously it's not in the same league. Although I do think in the film there is too many people in in a sense. Right, and but, for me, there aren't a lot of movies that are as visually striking as you know Blade Runner is. Yeah. So going back and reading the book from from that this thing that was very visually striking for me, you know, you lose some of that in the description. Yeah. I mean, is there sorry, just to sort of, is there examples of films where you think are worse than the book? Oh hell yes. Oh, uh, so, 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 yeah. So so but usually usually the, the the pattern that I found for myself is if I watch the movie first. I'll enjoy the movie and then read the book and see what's different about the book and I'll be fine with whatever those differences are. Yeah. But if I've read the book first and then try and watch the movie, it's just, ah, oh, they didn't do this right. They didn't do it the way I, I had imagined it. And, you know, it's, it, it almost always follows that pattern for me. If I read the book first, I'm going to hate the movie. If I watch the movie first, I'll, I'll still be all right with both. Yeah. I mean, I think I, 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 don't, I don't know if I can do that same pattern, but it's, it's definitely the, the pattern that fits me for um, Blade Runner, because I mean, I did really enjoy the book. Then I read it first, and when I, when I first watched the film on on VHS, I was like, "Oh God, what what did I do that for?" What what? I mean, I can understand why they missed out a lot of it because you just couldn't fit it in uh, a reasonable running time, you know. And I mean, right. some, things, and, and some things in the book are just like. You know, you just it just wouldn't really work visually, would it? Yeah, and and so much of what Philip K. Dick gets into in the book is so philosophical, and and you know, it's it's hard to bring something like that across just through dialogue yeah. without getting into people's thoughts. And uh, yeah, you know, so so I can see wh why the movie went the way it did. Mm. So I mean, basically, why do you prefer the film to the book then? Because I experienced it first. <laughs> so yeah, so <laughs> I mean, you know that, and that's yeah, that's basically what it always is for me. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. There, there are things about the there are things about the the book that I did love, and and I'm one of these people. The the things that I really enjoy 
are often the things that other people just sort of glance over and don't even care about. Mm. And, and two concepts in the book that I absolutely always struck me was uh, the concept of kipple yeah. and the mood organ. <laughs> yeah. I was just fascinated by both of those things. Well, I mean, kipple's like, I don't know, it's entropy really, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, that, that, that was when I first when I first read the book. That sort of stuck in my mind. The mood organ, not so much. I sort of skimmed over the mood organ because it doesn't really feature that much in the book, apart from really near the beginning, doesn't it? Right. Yeah, but I mean, it is a concept. It, it, it would be almost wonderful to sort of say, "Oh God, I feel like crap this morning." Just dial in, <laughs> it, uh, you know, dial in the good attitude to work, sort of thing, you know. Yes, my every every one of my. Uh... Every one of my houses and apartments and everything has always been a constant battle with Kipple. <laughs> the universe has a constant battle with Kipple. There you go. <laughs> okay, then. So, I mean, I don't know, is there anything else you want to say about the movie, then? Cause I'm, you know, I mean, your thoughts on the movie? No. no you're quite happy. You think you got your point across, then? I think I have my point across. And when I say I like the movie better than the book, I don't, you know, that's, there's not a huge distinction there. It's not that I love the movie and just didn't like the book. I mean, I really liked both of them. Just the movie comes out just slightly above it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I mean, as I said, I mean, I, I, my, my view is, I mean, I think I give the impression that I hate the movie and I didn't. I mean, I wish I explained with the talk right. the thingy. I mean, it's a, it's a classic science fiction movie. And I am... Um, I, I know, I know, like Retro and Jack said, it was slow. But I don't, I don't even find it that slow. I mean, I know this, like the pacing can be off at times. I, I don't, I didn't really find it that slow. I could just sit and watch the movie, and I don't sort of feel like it's dragging or anything, you know. I don't, I don't have a problem when a movie goes somewhat slow, like Blade Runner. I, I feel like it can take its time and make its points and be visually striking like that and be fine, so long as it doesn't become like Solaris, where you've got, you know five-minute scene of somebody driving down a highway without so much as dialogue to, to break things up, you know, that that movie was astoundingly, painfully slow. Uh, you know, Blade Runner's a jackrabbit of a movie compared to Solaris. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I couldn't disagree with you on that one. Um, okay, then, so, well, I think we're going to just wrap it up, then. I mean, um, I, it's, I, I found the movie a bit disappointing. <laughs> when, I first, when I first read it, as I said, you know, um, it's definitely growing on us. I said the theoretical release is growing on us as well, really. Um, uh, I still prefer the book. I still prefer the depth of the book. Um, and the book does have a lot of depth to it. It really does. Uh, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of back and forth going on against each of these characters. A lot of diametrically opposed forces on everybody, and you know, the movie definitely doesn't capture that. Yeah, but. I mean, I wouldn't go as I don't know. Would you see Blade Runner as a classic then? Oh yeah, yeah. See, I don't. I mean, I don't know. It's I don't know about the book. I mean, I, I love the book, but whether I would whether I would ever be classified as a classic, I don't know. You know, because um, I suppose he, he is still a big thing now, isn't he, Philip K. Dick? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, so um, but uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm beginning. I'm beginning to. Go off at a tangent, so well, yeah, you're happy with what you've said anyway. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Okay, then I'll, call, I'll I'll just I'll just say end it there. Okay. Right. Right. Well, I hope this is recorded. That was an interesting conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. I said. I mean, it's. 
I'll, I'm going to go back to bed, Jesse, so I'll, I'll say goodnight, okay? All right, have yeah. a good one. Good night. Good night. This was a triumph. I'm making a note here. Huge success. It's hard to overstate my satisfaction. Aperture science. We do what we must because we can. For the good of all of us, except the ones who are dead. But there's no sense.